Today on Let's Talk Limbic Sparks, we're with Reese Powell, the founder and CEO of Red Rabbit, the country's largest Black-owned K-12 school food company that celebrates all cultures in urban school cafeterias by preparing culturally relevant meals over 4 million per year. I'm Kevin Perlmutter, Chief Strategist and Founder of Limbic Brand Evolution, a brand consultancy that taps into emotional insights and applies behavioral science to strengthen connections between brands and people. And I'm co-host Jasmine Moradi, behavioral sound scientist, passionate about quantifying how sound impacts people's emotions and understanding emotional insights that affect consumer behavior. The limbic system part of our brain supports emotion, motivation, behavior, and memory. And we're both curious about how our guests are creating what I call limbic sparks, which happen when emotional motivation meets brand desire. We love to speak with brand and business leaders who are turning emotional insight into a competitive advantage to drive business growth for the brands that they serve. Thank you, Reese, so much for being with us today. And let's talk limbic sparks. Thanks, Kevin. Looking forward to it. Reese, we are just incredibly happy to have you with us today. And there's so much that we're going to talk about. But I'm going to start out with how you're how are you doing today? How are things? Doing great. You know, I think uh, I think we we hit spring in, in full full force in New York City. So, you know, the walk over here, I live I live not too far away from the office. Walk over here was pretty nice this morning. It's a fantastic day out. I was in New York City for the first time in a long time earlier this week, and it was amazing to be back. Yeah, the, the energy is starting to come back. I got to tell you, it's, uh, you, I feel a little buzzed. So they changed, I think the CDC had that ruling earlier this week. And on my walk home last night, there's a restaurant that I walk by and I've walked by it every night through the entire pandemic. And this was the first time it was, it was bustling since, since, you know, we shut down and to see, you know, 50 faces of people sitting down outside was a moment because I haven't actually seen people's faces in about, you know, in a little over a year because we've been wearing masks. And it was kind of one of those emotional moments that, that stopped you in your tracks. It was, it's, it was really great to be back and to be in a crowd again felt awkward and amazing at the same time. Yeah, that's um, the right you word. Know, speaking about the last year, I mean, it's, it's really put so, such a focus on priorities um, and where I want to start in my questions with you is what would you say are some of the things that you care about most in your life and career? Uh, that's a big question. I think, um, you know, my family, definitely, definitely my family's number one, you know, they, they drive, uh, all my decisions are driven, driven from them. What's, what's come up big inside my, I think in my personal life is my kid's safety has been something that's been on the docket quite a bit. I, I wouldn't say that that probably was there before the pandemic hit, but definitely over the last year, it's been something that's really pointed, um, you know, kind of really sinking into what, what the protective role is as a parent and, and, you know, how do you create the best environment for your kids and ensure that they're safe and their childhood is enriching. And that's really kind of super important these days, kind of front and center. The third one would be, I think, and, and this has been going on for a while now, and it's as a as an adult, it's kind of grown to become to become a part a big part of me. It's purpose in my work, kind of being able to really see the value of of all of my efforts beyond you know my own kind of personal personal wealth accumulation or or personal stuff accumulation. Really being able to see myself as a part of a community and a society, and and am I advancing that society? Am I making it better? Am I helping people along the way? And that, that, that is when I walk, when I walk out of my home every morning and I have to say bye to my kids, you know, that's the thing that kind of gets, gets me going, realizing that, you know, I'm needed, I'm appreciated. My work adds value to people's lives. Such an uplifting way to think about spending your every day. We spend so much time doing the things we do. And if it has real meaningful purpose, it's, it's just such an incredible place to be. With the people that you spend the most time with in your life, your family, your, extend, your extended family, your work family, your, your close friends, what do you value most in those relationships? Boy, um, you know, integrity and authenticity is something that I've grown to really, really value in folks. I think um, I, I really look for people who understand who they are, understand understand their role in the world and are willing to talk about it. They're transparent about it because there's no insecurity there. Um, you know, who, 
what you see is what you get. And, you know, that, that comes with the good and it comes with, with the bad too. But, you know, everyone that I try to surround myself with are folks who've kind of made those decisions, their life decisions based on integrity. And so I'm coming on 40, 42 this year. You know, I think that's officially midlife. Maybe is that midlife? <laughs> I don't know. Um, but, you know, I think in general, the folks that I surround myself with are ones that I you know, take ownership of their lives, you know, really, really take ownership of where they are, what they've done, who are the other people around them, and that that comes with an integrity. And then there's a there's another part of me, too, that I really like in people is, is this kind of lifelong learner sense of being a lifelong learner. You know, I kind of live my life that way. And uh, I see my life as a journey to learn as much as I can and use, use that education to help me make good decisions. And I like to surround myself with people who are also on that journey and can share in it with me and are also, you know, figuring things out, always trying to figure things out, find a way to, to live a better life. That's, that's incredible. It's such a, it's such a great way to, um, think about relationships. I want to switch into another type of relationship um, that we care about as well, which are relationships with brands. And I'm kind of curious if there is a brand or a product that you've had a, a strong connection with for a long period of time. Um, and, and I'm curious what that brand is and how it made you feel when you first encountered it and how it makes you feel today. Yeah. Yeah. Uh... You know, I'm going to go, this is an easy one, really. I'm going to go with Ben and Jerry's. They make ice cream. What a great example. <laughs> what a great example. Uh, you know, I went to school. I went to university in Massachusetts and Ben and Jerry's is from, you know, the guys there are from, it was founded in Vermont. So it, when I first encountered it, I think as, as kind of a young adult, you know, that sense of this is the local brand, these, you know, and they really position themselves as just two guys making ice cream in a shack, you know, and, and I, I think that, resonated in that New England community. And so I was, I was kind of really drawn to that at the time. Um, but then, you know, Ben and Jerry's really leaned into social justice messaging way back in the 90s. I mean, they're OG when it comes to speaking about issues of social justice. And so as a young adult, when I wasn't really um, kind of aware of those issues, or at least very, not very well versed in them, to have this ice cream brand you know, be out here talking about, you know, criminal justice reform and LGBTQ rights and, you know, climate change was, was kind of radical and groovy. And, you know, and so I'm sitting there and I'm looking at this local ice cream brand and they're talking this language that, you know, is a little bit foreign to me, but I'm drawn to it. And I think what it does is it takes them out of a product space for me, it took them out of the sense of, you know, this is just a product, this is just ice cream to a sense of, oh, this, I mean, then there's, you get that visceral connection to it. Like, oh, they stand for something bigger. And whenever I buy their ice cream, I'm kind of connected to that a little bit. I'm connected to that story a little bit. And so, and they had these really cool names too, <laughs> which is a little bit counterculture. And I kind of fashioned myself as a little counterculture, I think, you know, as, as a teenager. And so counterculture naming, the kind of social justice, you know, borderline activism, stepping out and and then delicious ice cream and it, it's such know, a great example me. and i have to tell you that um when people ask me the, that question that brand is always at the top of my list as well um for for everything you talked about for their the positions the, the positions that they take on um on society on justice um for the incredible way they present their brands for the way they name their products, the engaging way that they connect with people. And, and I, I hate to have to do this right now, but I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make you a little bit jealous. Um, tomorrow, my daughter graduates from the University of Vermont, and I will be on <laughs> campus, and I will be going to the Ben & Jerry's Scoop Shop for dessert, for sure. That's <laughs> not fair, Kevin. That's not fair. <laughs> so uh, that's that's going to happen tomorrow, and I'll I'll be thinking of you given this conversation. Yeah, if you see better, Jerry, tell him I said hi. <laughs> yeah, I don't think they hang out there much anymore. But, <laughs> I don't think but, so. But, but but their 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 image is definitely emblazoned um, on the fabric of that company. Very interesting what you say because 
growing up in Sweden, uh, we don't actually get that uh, connection with Ben and Jerry. So everything you're explaining, uh, I'm very fascinated because they must be really talking about that and, and spreading the message in, in the US, but they're actually not bringing it uh, over here at all. Um, so very, very interesting. I will look that up. And continuing on the subject of branding, I would like now to go a little bit deeper into getting a sense of what you're uh, all about. Describe yourself by only naming three to five brands and tell me why they paint a picture of you. Uh, okay, let's do it. Ben and Jerry's, that, that counterculture naming nomenclature kind of going against the grain, that that would probably describe me a little bit. Um, definitely not. Uh, don't approach myself as kind of mainstream in any way, um, even though I am wearing a suit. Uh, <laughs> I like, I've always liked Nike. I think they're just do it slogan kind of, you know, I was an athlete growing up and so just really drawn to the sense of like, we're out here to, to go get it and let's, let's get it. And for, I mean, Nike's what, a 40 year old company, 50 year old company. They've always kind of kept that momentum, kept that energy. Um, and then uh, how's Corona? Corona the beer? Let's, let's go with it. You know, I, I don't know if they were always this way, but whenever they have those ads about being on the beach, <laughs> just, they like I'll to take a lot attitude. That's right. That's, I mean, a 30 second ad and I'm watching it and I'm going, yeah. That's about right. <laughs> but I, I did grow up in the Bahamas, so that that it takes me back a little bit too. You know, there's I think um I've lived in New York for my entire adult life, which is a really hard charging go get them environment, but deep down in there is still uh is still an island boy who, you know, wants to walk barefoot on the beach all day and watch the sunset. And whenever those Corona ads come on, I'm, I'm, I'm right back there again. You know that brands want to offer us the best brand experience ever. So we choose them instead of their competitors. However, we've all had that bad brand experience in our lives that sticks with us. Can you share with us a brand experience that you recently had that was really bad? No need to name the brand, just what about the experience that was so bad? Yeah, you know, I don't, Man, this is this is legit. So I'm I'm an, I'm not going to name the brand. You may be able to figure it out though from the from the story I tell you. But you know, Nike leans into social justice as a sports brand, and there are other shoe companies that lean away from social justice as a sports brand. And you know, there's one brand recently, and just over the, I mean, maybe they were always this way, but that type of conversation wasn't in the public and over the last four or five years, they've just said some things, kind of represented who their brand is. And when when a brand says something and they make a statement and it's just not you, you know they're not talking to you. You know they don't care about you as a person. You know, you know how you identify isn't on their radar at all. And they kind of go like, you know, we don't really, whatever your interests are, are not important to us. Once they make that statement out there, it's really hard to then look at their product and go, in this case, like, yeah, those sneakers look really good. I want to buy a pair because I just can't get the image for that, that kind of gross feeling that comes up whenever I see their product again. You know, like I hear, I still hear the words. I still get that feeling. And so even years later, I look at their products and, you know, whatever, you're scrolling through online, doing some shopping, or you're in a store and you're going from sneaker to sneaker, figuring out which one you're going to buy. And every time I go to their section or I see that, I see their logo even, I'm just like, I'm repulsed by it a little bit. So, yeah, and it's sad because I think they have good sneakers. <laughs> it's such a, it's such an emotional, instinctive reaction that they've embedded in you through yeah. the way they've acted. Um, it's just emotionally, you, you can't come around to it anymore. And it's, it's unbelievable. And it shows yeah, the power know. Of, of voice and messaging, right? So even if you love the product, the voice and messaging is so strong that it goes through. Yeah, that it's it's odd too in this instance because you know there's a part of me that I guess my higher brain is going. It's a nice pair of sneakers. There are tens of thousands of people that work for that company. Of course, they all don't represent you know whoever the leadership is and yada yada. And so you kind of want to. I can feel my brain trying to you know make sense of 
make sense of what's happening, what's happening in my body and come to a logical conclusion that if I get value for the product and I like it and it looks good and it feels good on my foot, why is this emotional feeling getting in the way of me having this transaction? But, you know, at the end of the day, when I'm holding up two pretty relatively close products, I'm just going, yeah, I don't want to see that logo in my closet every day. Cause I, I don't want to be reminded of that every single day I put these sneakers on. I don't want to be reminded of that interaction. I don't want to be reminded of whatever that feeling was when I was in that place, you know, and then, and then I just don't buy it. So. That's very powerful. I would say. And, and what about a memory of a really good brand experience that you really want to wear and see the logo every day that makes you happy and excited? Let's see. It's a good brand experience I've had recently. Um, you know, in the, it will stick into the clothing space. I think, um, you know, with, with, uh, there's a certain brand. I like a pair of jeans that I like. And, uh, you know, I mean, this is what clothes, I think clothing retailers are really going for a lot of the time, right? Can we, can we capture your brand energy? Can we capture who you, how you want to feel and present yourself in society as, so that you get that feeling when you go to buy the jeans, right? So it's, I mean, I could say this one, this is a good one. It's Purpose Jeans, PRPS. Um, and like, you know, they've said some things in, in the media where I feel like they're talking specifically to me, um, you know, as a, as a tall black man, my physiology is kind of my physiology and other tall black men have similar physiologies. And when you're looking for a pair of jeans and a company says like, Hey, we're going to make jeans that fits your physiology. I feel a connection like, Oh, okay. They see me. They see me. They're talking to me. These jeans might not fit perfectly, but that's my problem because clearly they made them for me. Right. So now I'm making excuses to find a way to buy the brand because I now have this connection where I feel seen I feel heard. I feel like, okay, this brand really understands what my issues are. And so now, you know, all my jeans are <laughs> our purpose. Jeans. <laughs> Would you then say that in that brand experience that there were limbic sparse, a meeting of emotion and motivation brand desire that they achieved? Yeah. I mean, in, in both of those, you know, it, it is not, I mean, it's not, I'm not going to say it's not rational. It's not rational. It's not rational. Right. Like, those connections are, um, those are just feelings that I have. And, you know, as a consumer, I'm, I'm, you know, it, I'm not creating a spreadsheet and ticking out like, all right, value add on, on this product versus that product. I'm just going in and going, how does this make me feel? How does it make me feel to wear it? How does it make me feel to buy it? Do I walk out the store going like, yeah, I'm a winner today because I got this thing that I've wanted, you know, or do I walk out not sure and feeling kind of like, eh, I'm not sure I'm going to like that. And, at the end of the day, those have nothing to do really with, you know, the product itself. That's all just kind of this deep rooted sense of, you know, who am I in society and is this purchase representative of, of my vision of myself? So, so what would you say then? I'm curious when you're wearing those jeans, what emotions would you say that you're feeling? I feel so proud. I don't know if anyone else feels that way. I mean, my wife tells me she likes them, but she, she kind of has to. <laughs> I mean, I just, I walk out the house and I'm like, yeah, see me. I now brush my dirt off my shoulders. And, you know, I mean, I'll see a picture a year later and, and I'll go, wow, they weren't that special in the picture. But in the moment, I mean, that's, that's my happiness. You know, that's, that's, that's an exciting couple of weeks or exciting couple of months, just cause you know, I have that nice pair of kicks or I have that, you know, sweet pair of jeans and yeah, I don't know, pride react. So when, when we get into the kind of, do you see me, do you see me as a person? And I'm connecting that brand with that emotion, this kind of place in society, I feel like, all right, I'm truly representing my place in society, not just because of who I am, but because I'm also projecting out this image that I think is aligned with that. And, you know, that helps me get through the day. You know, if the day is tough, I'm like, well, that might, at the end of the day, I might feel good because I'm still walking out, you know, with that sense of energy and walking out of the office with that sense of that energy and kind of uplift. Uh, yeah, it's weird now that you got me talking about it, that a pair of jeans is getting me feeling a purpose in life, but. <laughs> 
Uh, I, I feel the same way of wearing dresses and high heels, actually. I do. When I, whenever I have a bad day, I, I can wear them just to get that, that energy out of it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's, I mean, I, I don't know. I guess there are some folks who are, where it isn't clothing that matters. But, you know, for me, it, I feel good. It makes me feel good. Yeah. And looking into branding in terms of the way that they have inspired you, and especially the way that they've inspired you to lead your company, Red Rabbit Brand. Sure. I mean, I'm going to go back. We're staying in the apparel space, but what, what Nike has done over the decades, I mean, have you guys, did you guys watch the, uh, the Tiger Woods documentary? I think it was on either HBO or Netflix. I did not see uh, it yet. Uh, it's, it it's a, I, mean, I would have watched it though. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe it's HBO. Um, you know, it came out a couple months ago. And uh, it, it, it overall, it's a bit of a sad documentary. I mean, we all know his story. Um, you know, an, an epic figure in our lives, but definitely he's had drama. But it, in the scenes where they went back to Young Tiger, right, this is the part that was, was extremely exciting and mind blowing. You know, go back to the mid 90s when Tiger first burst onto the scene and he was, I don't know, 17, 18 years old. And here's this kid who's this phenomenal golfer. He's shattering records. Everyone's, you know, chatter about he's gonna be the best of all time. And he signed with Nike, him and his dad signed with Nike. So in the documentary, they're going over the signing, they're going over like the meetings they had with his dad and Tiger, who's a teenager. And then they're going over some of the marketing and branding decisions they were making at the time to kind of, you know, introduce Tiger to the world as this, I think it's when he just went pro, right? So he's no longer a student athlete anymore and they can now, you know, they can now present him as a professional. And they really leaned into the social justice aspect of what it meant to have Tiger, who was the first, um, it wasn't the first, but to have this young black man be the face of golf. And the fact that even then he couldn't play at certain golf courses. Right, so here he is, he's a phenom, he's about to be the best golfer ever. And there are golf courses that he can't play at, or if he plays at, he has to have a chaperone because he's black. And Nike, you know, they didn't lean away from it. They leaned into it back then. They were like, we're gonna make this history front and center. We're going to, um, we're gonna talk about it. We're gonna highlight it. And we're gonna to continue to celebrate golf and Tiger's accomplishments, but we're not gonna shy away from this fact. And so when I watched that, and then you look at what Nike did with Serena Williams. So I was a tennis player growing up. And uh, so I played, I played a lot of tennis, you know, tennis and golf are the country club sports. So I kind of really resonated with Tiger's experience, the sense of you can go, but you're not really welcome or the space isn't for you as a, as a teenage, as a teenage black boy. And then, uh, you know, Serena came on the scene, Serena and Venus and, you know, tennis, the tennis community wasn't very nice to her. And she ended up being probably the best American tennis player best American female tennis player in history, or she's definitely in the conversation. And, you know, back in the early 2000s, you know, ten the tennis community was very nice to her as a black woman. And again, Nike jumped in and they leaned into it. And more recently, you see what they've done with Colin Kaepernick. And now they have Naomi Osaka, who is very vocal about her position. And when I think about Red Rabbit, and I think about our position in that space, and I look at kind of what Nike did, I get a lot of inspiration from them. The fact that they took these issues and they really staked their brand on it. And they were like, look, this is the reality and this is the truth of our athletes and our, our spokespeople. And we're going to allow them a platform to be able to talk about these issues. And you know what, what I think is part of Nike's marketing genius in it is, they also all always celebrated the, the, the sport, right? So Nike represents this, this kind of energy around sport, this uplifting celebratory, like we're going to, we're going to overcome, we're going to do it together. You know, every time you watch a Nike ad, you're like pumped up afterwards, you feel good. And so they've been able to walk this line of saying, we're celebrating the sport, we're uplifting people, we're, we're doing it in a way that makes you want to run faster and jump higher and dunk a basketball and, but we're also not going to shy away from these kind of really deep societal issues that we want to address and we're going to lean into them and, and create a platform for our athletes. And so when I think about Red Rabbit and I think about the journey that we're going on, I pull a lot of inspiration from that, that sense of, you know, we want to celebrate food, we want to talk about it in a way that's uplifting, but we also don't want to shy away from the history. Um, and we want to make sure that our brand is kind of encompassing both of those energies. 
uh, uh, at the same time. That's excellent. I think it's a perfect transition into um, some things I want to you know hear from you about Red Rabbit. And I, I, where I want to start um, is is can you just describe the the services that you provide and the operations and and a little bit more of your daily impact? Sure, sure. So we are, like you said earlier, the largest Black-owned school food company in the country. We um, we provide meals to K-12 public schools, charter schools, and early childhood development programs throughout the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic. We're serving about five and a half million meals a year now. Um, we're a full service program. So you know, we place chefs inside of cafeterias inside of schools, or if a school is too small and doesn't have its own cafeteria, our chefs cook meals at our commissary kitchen and we deliver it to the school at mealtime. Uh, our mission is to provide kids with you know, the very best nutritious meals possible. And so to that end, all of our meals are cooked from scratch. Um, we use only fresh ingredients and it's all, they're all made by chefs. And, uh, and the best part is that the chefs come from the communities as the kids that we're serving. So the meat, the food that they make is familiar to the kids. It uplifts their culture and their heritage. And overall, it's just, the food's just really delicious. And so we're changing the narrative around school food and also providing kids with a nutritious and kind of culturally relevant food. I was reading um, a lot about your company and you and I have known each other for a little bit and have talked a few times. And, and I know that over the last year or so, you've made an evolution in the positioning of your company. And for many years, um, while all of this was important to you, you were operating off of a positioning around healthy food. And you've recently made a very significant shift around food justice. And you say that food justice is social justice. Can you talk about what inspired this evolution and how it's deepened your purpose and the values that you bring into what Red Rabbit stands for? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's, it's a journey. And Kevin, you and I were, you know, we met kind of somewhere in the middle of that. And so you, you've kind of seen that evolution. So I'm glad we're able to talk about it now that we're on that kind of brand evolution. We're on the other side of it, but you know, it goes, it really goes back to, it really goes back to the history. So um, if we think of America, if we go back to the 1960s and we think of schools, schools were super segregated, super segregated. Of course they were segregated back then. And, you know, in the 1960s, we had a civil rights movement and, you know, the goal of that civil rights, one of the goals of the civil rights movement was this kind of massive, social, moral, social change, which was to integrate our schools and kind of live out Martin Luther King's dream um, of having a kind of everyone in school together. And so that's happening in the 60s. And if you flash forward to 2014, an article came out that said that New York City had the most segregated school system in the country. And I mean, that was just, that was just a real blow to kind of hear the results of that study. And so we're, we're smack dab in the middle of Barack Obama's second term as president. You know, there's chitter chatter about a post-racial America. And this article comes out and it's this big, you know, psych. Like, no, we're not post-racial yet. There's still these kind of systemic issues that exist inside our society and inside our institutions. And, you know, the symptom of having segregated schools is just a symptom, but, you know, these deep-rooted issues still exist. Uh, and so, you know, I did a lot of research and I lived in that space for a little bit. and started to really understand how the messaging was impacting how kids felt inside of school that, you know, even though the spaces were, you know, were there for kids to have education, there was this complete sense of, you know, who is legitimate, who's allowed to be here, whose who's story is central in this space. And I started to look at our positioning as a company and our conversations around healthy and nutritious. And I was realizing that you know, we, we weren't really honoring the heritages of the kids inside of school because we weren't being deliberate and specific with our language about who it was that we're helping and why those systems existed in the first place. And, you know, kind of, I'm a black man, I have black kids, my kids are in that school system and I'm watching this happen and I understand this history and I understand this present. And I'm thinking that there's just, we have to do something different about this. So we started the process of changing our kind of brand messaging and our brand language. And like I said, to be really deliberate and specific about who it was that we're helping, why we're helping them, 
Um, and I've got this little anecdote that I use now or this little saying that, you know, the message itself is the soul food, right? Like it's one thing to provide that the nutritious meals into school. It's one thing to provide the delicious meals into schools. It's another thing to talk about it and to be open and transparent about here's why we're doing it. Here's what the history is. And, you know, here's the impact that we want to see in society. And so that really started us on this journey of saying, hey, we need to be deliberate. We want to be we want to be a lot more transparent about who it is that we're helping. Um, you know, the New York City public school system is 65 percent black and Latino. Um, when you look at the history of the country, you know, there's there are reasons for that, which we don't need to get into now. But, you know, there's there, there are kind of historical reasons for why things have evolved the way they've evolved. And if I'm looking forward to the future and saying, well, what do I want the world to look like 20 years from now? What do I want the world to look like 50 years from now? What are the changes that I need to make today in the work that I'm doing? To help bring about that world and so you know we decided to evolve our brand that's when we reached out to you and we had some really good conversations about it you know a few years ago a year and a half ago a few years ago at this point um and really wanted to be you know kind of dig into the sense of social justice and food justice and understanding like there is there are systemic reasons why the school system is the way that it is there are systemic reasons why the food system is the way that it is if we continue to live in the sense of dealing with the symptoms, we're never going to make real change. Let's get to the root of the issue. Let's unearth that. And then let's present a solution that really talks to that and addresses it. And so we're about to do this change and then COVID hit. Yeah. <laughs> COVID hit and that kind of threw everything in disarray for everyone. I mean, it was very dramatic last year and a half we've had. And then the protests hit. And I think what was what was interesting about that period is we were on the precipice of kind of bringing this message forward. And I think we weren't, we clearly were not the only ones, right? Society in and of itself was kind of saying, you know, we need to address this issue, right? We have not been honoring people of color, Americans of color, and we have not been giving them a fair shot in society. And this cannot go on for another generation. We need to, to, to refashion these institutions. And so over the last year, we've, we've done an amazing job, I think, I think um, kind of really digging into how we want to present ourselves what's the message that we want to put out there and um and 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 talking about the things in a very transparent and deliberate way so that there's this connection between the outcome that we want for society the outcome that we want for our company but also connected to the history of you know why things are the way they are and um, and how we're trying to help change that incredible and i want to dig into it even deeper because this is You've, you've really tapped into some deep emotional territory that's rooted in societal change. It's so much more than a brand evolution. And I'm curious about how you and your team approached it. How did you um, start to have the conversations about the change that you wanna make and maybe some of the, talk about some of the steps you took to get to where you have arrived? Yeah, so I mean, this, it, it, it probably, if I ever write a book, it'll be in there. It'll be a big chapter. But the sense of, you know, we were, if I go back to a year and a half ago, it really had to do with the words that we were using. You know, I think one of the things that, and, and this is very pertinent to branding and messaging, um, even though, like you said, it goes a little bit beyond just branding and messaging. It goes into the ethos of who we are as a company. But really, I had to take a full stock of what are the words that we're going to use to describe the problem that we're solving? And, what, and describe what our solution to that problem is. And when I laid those words out, I thought, okay, society hasn't yet defined what these words mean in a very clear way. So if I start saying these words, folks won't understand what I'm saying, what I, what I mean. And so we're going to need, the first thing we're going to need to do is get a understanding internally inside our company of what the words mean that we're going to use and how that's connected to the history and how that's connected to our mission. And so the first step that we did was just that. It was really a lot of housekeeping, a lot of making sure everyone inside the organization understood what was happening, what we meant when we very, being very specific, like we're going to use these words and this is what we mean when we say these words. This is how this connects to the history. This is how this connects to our food. This is how this connects to um, the kids that we're serving. And the, the idea being that if you live in a space, if we lived in the space where we were before or where I think society was before, they were, a lot of words were mushy, right? So there was a lot of kind of glossing over specific issues and speaking about terms inside in generalizations. So you can kind of call them euphemisms. 
essentially. Um, you know, and I think to be a little bit more specific, things like you know, nutrient deficiency, lack of access, these were words that were used to describe school food, right? And it, it's it, there there are scientific reasons for that, but I think society and, and took out its own meaning for, for those science, very scientific words. And those words were again fitting into this narrative um, around um, around school food as some, you know, like it just happened that way. And if we just solve these symptoms, then you know the problem will go away. And so we had to get out of that mushy space and get into very specific area around like what is the problem that we're solving? How are we going to solve it? And here are the words we're going to use to describe it. So that first step was kind of internal housekeeping. Um, and then after we did that, uh, we needed to get the external world involved. And that was actually quite a bit of a journey. I think, you know, we're, we're blessed in that the protests happened and a lot of, I mean, a lot of these issues were happening, you know, the conversation was happening in society. So words were starting to be defined and there became this reference point that we could lean into and say, just like what's happening over there, we're talking about that same issue, that same social justice issue with regards to kids in school, right? So I think, kind of buzzword. So four years ago, no news person, no media person said the word racist, period, right? There were euphemisms for it, racially charged, racially adjacent, controversial, but no one would use that term because the term meant something. We weren't, we, there was no agreement on what the term meant, right? And over the last four years, we've seen the term become, become defined and now news anchors can use it with a certain sense of meaning, right? And so we now had to figure out well, what are the words that society is using to describe these issues? I mean, even the term social justice and food justice didn't have as much meaning three years ago as they have today. Uh, and so then we're figuring out how do we communicate this out to the world? We hired a few folks to try to do that for us. And what's really interesting is it, it didn't it didn't land, I think. It, it really didn't land. And we spent a few months trying to bring in copywriters and and uh, kind of external folks to figure out the words for us and it didn't land. And it wasn't until I took the time and wrote um, wrote an op-ed, which really tried to capture everything that we were saying in a, in a relatively concise way um, and put that op-ed out both, both internally and externally. And, and it, that's what became kind of a roadmap. So again, that's an accumulation of, like you said, this deep-rooted history and this deep-rooted narrative around social justice and where this kind of um, inequity in the school food system came from and what we were going to do to help solve that. So once that op-ed kind of was written, it became a sense of, oh, this is what Red Rabbit means. These words are the words that Red Rabbit used. And then from that, we could build out to external communication to the rest of the, the stakeholders in the community. So, you know, the, the kind of distribution channels, the website, newsletters, blogs, social media, things like that, all kind of were burst from that, from getting that op-ed down on paper. But the key is that we couldn't put it out until we kind of had that conversation internally and really started to define who we were to the team and give them the words to talk about it. Yeah, and once you had that, um that roadmap for your for your brand evolution and the, and the words all down and everyone was in agreement that this is the path forward for Red Rabbit. How did that affect sales and marketing? What's and what's been the response to sales and marketing since you've started um, using this new approach and um, and messaging that's deeply rooted in your values? Yeah, it's been phenomenal. I got to tell you, and and this kind of goes to I'm learning a lot through this process and. What, what I think is happening is that we are tapping into long-standing narratives and stories in society, and we are, we are being deliberate about aligning ourselves with, um, with a specific storyline. So, you know, I talked about Nike earlier and their sense of uplift and their sense of uh, addressing social justice issues. Well, you know, this conversation around social justice issues and, you know, especially in the Black community has been going on since the beginning of the country. Right. And, and when we talk about the journey of America, this journey from, you know, a slaveholding nation to one where we've been trying to live up to our, to our ideals, you know, Obama calls it you know, our journey to become a more perfect union. We're constantly trying to live up to the ideals that were written in our constitution. Um, and this is a part of that journey. And so when we, we have aligned ourselves to that journey, essentially, and then we're saying, 
we, we are not coming up with these words. We're not coming up with this position. We are just an extension of what has been happening since the founding of the country. So we, we are an extension of Frederick Douglass's work. We're an extension of W.E. Du Bois. We're an extension of Martin Luther King. We are really just standing on their shoulders and saying, hey, for the next generation, this is the work that we have to do. And what's happening is folks in the education space, to some extent, they've all already made that commitment. When you, when you live in the education, when you decide to be, have a career in education, you're deciding that you're going to put your efforts towards shaping the next generation of, of, of Americans. You're going to teach the kids not just how to read and math and science, but you're going to teach them what it means to live inside, a, inside our society and what the rules of our society are and what, what are the goals and aspirations of our society. And so now that we've stepped into that lane and we've, we've kind of made a very clear message to those educators that, hey, this is the this is the arc of Red Rabbit. We are so, we see ourselves as a part of this journey. You know, we're standing on the shoulders of of civil rights um, civil rights leaders. We're using their same language, and our work really is just an extension of that same work. It's we've seen that that that, that our our clients, school leaders, are really aligned with that, and they're they're kind of feeling this kind of. I mean, we'll see how it goes over the next few years, but the early reports are that they're feeling this visceral connection to it in a way that, um, you know, our, our language before, where we were talking more about kind of food as its own thing, as its own issue, yeah. you know, didn't really connect to them. This is much more connected to how they see themselves in society and their role. Um, and then, you know, kind of tangential to that, the kids are, <laughs> the kids are funny. You know, we, we had a conversation with some teenagers, you know, some high schoolers yesterday and, you know this this next generation of kids they've got smartphones they've got the internet they they have access to enormous amounts of information and they they know they know a lot of this history themselves you know they, they they're still young and they're learning but as far as access to it they are very very aware of the history in a way that you know when we were growing up we only we had to go look for it this this history yeah. is coming right at them and so you know, when we walk in and we're, we're talking about social justice and we're talking about the history of America and our role in being a connection, uh, an extenuation, extension of that history, they're right there with us. I mean, they are, they are right there with us. They're all very aware of the issues. And when we say, hey, we're here to uplift you and celebrate you because, you know, the system historically hasn't done that and here's why. And they're like, yeah, no, absolutely. That's right. That's right. Thank you for saying that, you know, and there's this kind of affirmation that they're giving back to us that, um, you know, I wouldn't trade for anything. I mean, I, we are a business, and so we want to grow. And you know, there, there's you know business, you know business rules and, and structures that, that and goals that we're we're trying to achieve. But at the end of the day, to sit across across the table from a 15 year old and have them feel validated because I've told them a story that includes them and centers them and says I'm yeah. creating a product that you know addresses their issues and, and helps make their life better. I mean, that 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 when you talk about purpose, that that's what that's what it's all about. Wow, so it's incredible. You're having this, um, you're creating these deeper connections with the school administrators who are um, seeing a path forward based on how you are presenting your brand and, and the, the values you bring into it. And it's incredible to also hear that you're having these conversations with students. You're, you're basically interviewing your end users um, as we say in branding and you're, what you're doing is, is you're hearing, you're hearing from them, um, how they're reacting, not only to your message, um, how are they responding to the food? You know, they've always loved the food. The food's yeah. great. I mean, the food's great. The food's great. And you know, it's, I mean, if you get down to the specifics of it, I'll tell you a story about Ola. She's a chef of ours. Um, she, grew up in the New York City public school system. She went to school in Brooklyn. Her parents are Nigerian and Jamaican descent. And, you know, she never saw herself reflected in school food. She, she was never, her family's food was never served in the cafeteria. And so she introduced jollof rice and studio chicken onto our menu, which, you know, is a traditional West African dish. And it has, um, it has roots in the Caribbean also. And now we're serving that into the school system. And so you have all these kids um, all these American kids who have West African and Caribbean descent who mm -hmm. were told that they are marginal, that their you know, experience is marginal. And here we are saying like, no, your experience is not marginal. Your experience is center. 
you, you are the future, right? And we're uplifting them in a way that broader society kind of, you know, skirts around it a little bit. And we're saying, we're gonna build an institution that's focused on centering you and your experience. Um, and, you know, the, the manifestation of that is this meal, right? So if you want to make it a tangible manifestation, here's this meal that does that. And they're just going like, yeah, man, this is great. They're really connecting to it. And, um, and then other kids who may not have that background also get that experience, right? So I think, I think at the core, what we're talking about and what they're reacting to is the sense of who's allowed to be, who's allowed to call themselves American, right? Mm -hmm. And are you, do you get to say you're American if this is your family's food or do you have to, you know, think of something else as American and you are you know, tangential to what American society is. And so when we say like, no, what is typical school food is American and this school food is also American. This is, these are American children in an American school and their heritage has been here for a long time. We've just never considered them to be American. Well, we're going to consider it that way. Let's everybody enjoy this and kind of, you know, center that experience. Yeah, and we talked about this a bit earlier. I, I just want to go uh, a, a, one more step into this conversation because you talked yeah. about the the difference in how it feels to have what you're calling typical, what is typical school food versus culturally relevant food. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, you know, if, if you live in the space of the product itself, and we, we, we talked about this earlier when we were talking about sneakers, right? Um, if, if I'm not creating a spreadsheet between um, Nike sneakers and some other brand sneakers and saying like this one has you know 0.3% more cushion in it, that's not how we've moved through the world. Um, mm -hmm. We really have this kind of visceral connection to things. And so when I talk about when I think about let's call it typical school food and then this kind of culturally relevant school food, you could live in the sense of what the actual menu items are. But I, I don't want to. I don't want the conversation to go there because that again is not how we really move through the world. We move through the world kind of as emotional beings, thinking we want to go to places that reaffirm us and energize us, and we kind of want to stay away from places that don't reaffirm us. And so, you know, when we talk about culturally relevant food, what we're saying is that beyond just the menu items, we want to create an environment that centers the experience of kids of all different cultures. So there will be no othering in a red rabbit cafeteria. There will be no sense of that food is different and therefore we have to treat it differently. It's exotic and therefore we have to treat it in a way that it's you know unique. We're gonna bring that into the center and we're gonna make room for this for this West African and Caribbean dish. We're gonna make room for this East Asian dish. We're gonna make room for the South, Southeast Asian dish. And we're gonna do it in a way that is centering all of them, right? And the reason for that is that we want kids of all of those backgrounds to walk into that space and feel as though that space is their space and it's there for them. And they don't have to change who they are in order to be accepted into that space. I'm giving an anecdote around the negative side of that. So David, uh, celebrity chef David Chang, he grew up outside of DC in a Korean American family. And he talks about in his book, how dramatically, how traumatically, how traumatic his experience in school was because the food that his family ate at home was really uttered in the cafeteria. And that as a child, you process that as shame. Right. You process that as the things that are mine, that my family does, are shameful. And I need to leave those, either leave them at home or not celebrate them, because then that makes me an other in the broader society. Right? That, that makes me an outsider in a way that I don't feel comfortable as a 12-year-old thinking of myself as an outsider. I really want to be an insider. And those scars, he says, really have followed him through his whole life. And so to some extent in American society, we've accepted and we've normalized this idea that kids who don't fit into this mold of typical American, we don't need to get into the specifics of that. So definitely his Korean American family didn't fit. I would say that Ola's East African and Caribbean family didn't fit into that mold. It's okay for us to create an environment where those kids are shamed in school, where their background is considered other inside of school. And so when you, when you accumulate this impact, 
we've created a framework where kids of color essentially are othered inside the school system, inside the lunchroom, which is a reflection of how they're treated inside of society. And so what we are trying to do and what the difference between talking about it in a way that says, here's proper healthy food, eat a kale salad and you'll be healthy versus here's food from all these, these American cultures and they're all awesome and let's talk about them and their heritage is that it gets rid of that shaming and it gets rid of that othering. And it's this react, re reaffirmation for all those kids saying, you belong here, this is your space, you are American and this whole country is for you, right? This whole country is to make your life better so that you can have a bright future. And that emotion, that kind of loving, nurturing sense of I belong, that is what we want to give inside the school lunchroom and the school cafeteria. And that is more important than saying, here's a specific dish you eat, or here's how many vitamins are in this dish, or you know, this type of food, here's the balance of food on this plate. And we're like, yeah, that's important. We'll worry about that. But when we talk to kids and we we put our message out there about who's important, who's valuable, what are we creating this food for? We wanna make sure we have that nurturing sense for all the kids saying, you can bring your whole self here. You can bring all of yourself, your family's history. You're gonna see your family's food. We're gonna reaffirm it, we're gonna celebrate it. We won't shy from the history. There's no shame in this space. This is a positive uplifting space. And you know, then from a business standpoint, we're hoping that really is what connects, to, what connects the kids and then they, wanna, they, wanna, they want us in their school, so. It's incredible when you're able to combine such purpose with what matters most to people down deep. It really is incredible. Thank you for sharing all of that. I must say that um, I'm, I'm very emotional touched by this right now. Like, uh, I, I'll be very honest, like, I almost want to cry. <laughs> what you're saying is something that I've known, but I've forgotten. Growing up Iranian, sorry, <laughs> what you're saying hits home. It just reminds me just at this moment, being Iranian, growing up in Sweden, the food made me feel what you're explaining. That what we ate at home was not in the school and we had to pretend be somebody else to fit in. So, well, Thank you, thank you for sharing that and, and for the work you do. And it's very rare for me to meet somebody who has funneled so much of the, you know, your personality into a business and an amazing cause. And there's so much that other brand uh, leaders and businesses can learn from you. So I want to know, for example, from your perspective, why do you think that some brands are still neglecting the power of emotion, emotional insight in their approach of growing their business when it's so powerful? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that that we're trying to do, and at least we're doing, and the brands that I'm most inspired by is, is that they've, they've really tapped into these stories that have existed well before the companies. Right? So I feel as though we're, we're social animals, we are social beings, we are moved by emotion, we use our brains, our upper level brain sometimes, but really deep down, like we're moved by that limbic part of our brain. And, um, and you know, for a brand to really connect with someone, at that base level, you have to understand those stories that exist in, in our society, in our social groups. And you have to then understand how your product aligns with those stories. I think one of the brands that has done that the best over, I mean, this is kind of obvious now because they're the biggest consumer brand company in the world is Apple. So Steve Jobs circa mid nineties came back to Apple and said, hey, like we're not selling computers and you know, and, um, and, and calculators. We're selling a feeling of purpose and belonging through the tools. Like what we're selling is your connection to everyone inside your social group in your society. And so this idea that you wanna talk about how fast your computer is, it's like, that, that's all hogwash. We need people to feel included. And so what he tapped into was a story from, I mean, this is gonna seem quite dramatic, but the beginning of mankind and us building cool tools, right? We've been building tools and that's what separated us in history from, from the other animals is that we build tools, you know, from the first spear and knife and 
pots and things like that. We build these tools. And so we, we deep rooted in us is the sense that we want to build and try new cool things and figure out new ways to do things. That, that's so deeply rooted in, 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 in each person and in each group in society. And he tapped into that. And he said, our products aren't something you buy to get your work done. Our products are an extension of your purpose on this earth as humanity to build cool tools. And we are the vehicle by which humanity will be better. And once he captured that ethos, I mean, history will say he became the biggest consumer brand. He became the biggest consumer brand product in history by tapping into that. But to do that, right, you have to understand that history and you have to understand really what it is that your, your role is inside the social group and society. And I think a lot, of, a lot of companies and a lot of brands aren't really willing to do that work. And so they're living in say, you know, what's the conversation of the last five years or what's the conversation of the last 10 years or how am I solving someone's problem next month or next, you know, the next six months? And they're not looking at like, if, if you really want to connect with people, you have to look at, you know, the whole history of who we are, you have to pick a narrative, pick a story that represents us. And then you have to figure out how your brand aligns with that story. And that's where you're really going to connect with people. You're really going to connect with, with kind of the limbic part of our brain that's making decisions that, that we don't even know why we just, you know, feel connected to things. And then you would say that that is the best way then for brand leaders to create this limbic sparks to, to reach that. Absolutely. You know, I think, I mean, at, at, at some level, that's the only way. Um, and then, you know, all great brands, that's what they've done. So, I mean, you could, you could have success in a year or two doing anything, right? You could figure out a better mousetrap. And if you got a better mousetrap, someone's, people are going to buy your product because it's better. But if you want to create a brand that people emotionally connect to, you've got to tap into some part of their being and their sense that, that they don't even realize is happening tap into some story that they think about themselves. It's so, it's so background and it's so obvious that they probably couldn't even articulate it to you that that's who they are. And once you kind of funnel into that space, then, you know, I think then you've got longevity, right? Then you've got a 20 year brand or even a 50 year brand um, or you're even longer than that. But, you know, I think a lot of brands are still li will live in the what's this how do i sell this product next month or how do i sell this product over the next year or two and they're not really thinking long term i'll use steve jobs again as an example i mean when he when he started speaking that way in the mid 90s and apple started creating products it seemed to be just i mean they were a computer they were on par with dell I mean, i don't know who has a dell now right mm -hmm. and everyone was like well dell's doing it faster and they're doing it cheaper and they're distributing it ease quicker to people and he was like, don't worry about that. Like, I'm not selling computers. I am selling emotional connection here. And if I'm doing computers, I mean, what are they doing now? Glasses, watches, the AirPods. He's like, I'm selling emotional connection here. And it doesn't matter what my product is. As long as I can tap into this human sense of we create tools and I want a tool to do something in a fun way, that's never going away. And yeah, I think that's what brands need to do. Um, they need to figure out what the story is that they're tapping into. What is a very basic human human part of life that you know that that our limbic system controls and then latch on to that and make sure they're speaking to that part of the brain powerful wow is is there anything from your experience uh you it, you've thought about this so much it's so clear and it's so incredible how much um awareness of what brands need to do right that you're bringing into red rabbit what is it that you wish you knew earlier that maybe other other brand leaders who are at an earlier stage in their journey can learn from? Yeah, I'm going to tap into that again, Kevin. I think, um, you know, I, I, I definitely lived in the sense of I probably had a 10 year horizon early on. And it, it's questionable on whether or not as, as a small company that was appropriate, meaning that that I look back 10 years and I look forward 10 years and that was the entire world as I assumed it to be. Yeah. Um, you know, I thought that all things happened in that 20 year span and, you know, the impact of the world was really formed 10 years ago. And, you know, there's only 10 years of future to really care about. And I would say, I wish someone had sat me down and said, you know, you have to go deeper, you have to go further. You know, you need to, you need to find some source to understand more than your lived experience. Right. So you need to, you know, find a way to understand humanity beyond what you've experienced as a person 
whether that's you know understanding the history or thinking about what the future will be a way beyond what you can experience as a person. And so I, I wish I had sat down you know 10 years ago and had that type of advice and then found the time to do that work because um, it does take work and you know and, and spent the time thinking about who I was, what the story was that I wanted to be a part of, and then what the company was you know, in, in that broader story, I think, I think I probably would have made some different decisions early on. Um, I probably would have gotten here a lot quicker and maybe, maybe it would have seemed a little bit more radical back then, but you know, those, those storylines, this history did, the history didn't change in the last 10 years, right? It's, it's, it's a very old, old story. And so, you know, I, it was just waiting for me to figure it out, I guess. Um, and so, yeah, I wish I had that advice earlier and I wish I'd put in that work earlier. Incredible. Reese. thank you so much for all that you've shared with us today. This has been um, a, a great conversation and thank you so much for joining Jasmine and I on Let's Talk Limbic Sparks. Thanks guys, this has been great. Jasmine, I'm, I'm sorry I made you cry. No, no, it's beautiful, <laughs> it's emotional. <laughs> you know, it's a reminder, thank you very much. Thank you. For more, go to limbicsparks.com.